Living in the gift, as Ethan Hughes reminds me, requires not only giving our gifts, but also asking for our needs to be met. The following are some things I could really use right now to make continuing the podcast easier. A laptop capable of running the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite. Some of those specs include a full HD, 1080p screen, 8 gigs of RAM, and an i5 processor. Due to the amount of data I handle, especially when photographer John is with me, a 512 gig hard drive or larger would be great. Any specs above those are golden. A low mileage hybrid vehicle to replace my current minivan with 200,000 miles on it. Healthcare. Because of the way the US system works, the insurance coverage I can afford is not accepted by my allergists or other specialists that help keep me healthy. At the moment, the most pressing need is for assistance covering my next and hopefully last vial of yellow jacket venom as part of my immunotherapy treatment. Thankfully, the cost for that has stayed the same and is around $500. If you would like to know more about any of these, feel free to send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you're able to give towards any of these efforts, you can go to paypal.me forward slash permaculturepodcast or via the link in the show notes or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Now then, on to the show. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to Episode 1716, Climate Change and the Path Ahead. In this episode... A continuation of the MAPC 2016 Q&A from a couple of days ago, my friend Juliana Maria Lamana of the Fifth World drops a huge two-part question on us. Are there people in the permaculture community talking about climate change and the impact of global warming on invasive species? Is it our responsibility as permaculture practitioners to create new ecosystems for the changing climate? This conversation leads to thoughts on preserving native ecosystems, the creation of novel ecosystems, the role and influence of exotic species, as well as human disturbance and the forces of erosion. We're also asked to examine our own role in tending the wild and what responsibility, if any, we have to domesticated species such as chickens. We also, near the end, look at the role of fear in human motivation. And through all this, I'm left wondering, can we take back the stewardship of our own habitat. Today you'll hear voices including Ava Taylor of Ironwood Farms, Zach Elfers of Nomad Seed Project, Benjamin Weiss of Susquehanna Permaculture, Jason Gadeski of The Fifth World, Nicole Luttrell of Wild Song Farm, Claudia Joseph of New York Permaculture Exchange, Seppi Garrett of Seppi's Place, Dale Hendricks of Greenlight Plants, and Dr. Christopher Huvos. If you enjoy this conversation, we're only a month away from MAPC 2017. You'll find a link to where you can pick up tickets in the show notes, or you can go to 2017mapc.eventbrite.com. Now then, on to the group discussion. We begin with Juliana framing her question. I'll join you again afterwards. I have an unrelated and kind of huge macro level question. I've been reading a lot about global climate change and every article that comes out says the same thing. It's happening so much faster than experts ever thought. 
you know, severe changes will happen within decades rather than centuries. And on the other hand, I've also been reading articles about invasive species and how global warming is affecting invasive species. But I never really see the invasive species people thinking, well, maybe this is kind of what needs to happen. Maybe a lot of these ecosystems that we live in are not going to be there anymore. And I've been thinking about my own permaculture garden and thinking, do I want to plant a food forest that in 20 years is just going to die because it'll be too hot for it to survive? And I, I suppose my, my question is twofold. Number one, are there people in the permaculture community talking about this? And is it our responsibility as permaculturalists to kind of create new ecosystems for the changing climate, basically, or, or move everything north? My name is Eva Taylor from Ironwood Farms, and uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on the same sorts of things. And there seems to be two different ways that people are seeing the invasive plant issue. And part of it is, you know, your perspective, you know, the problem being the solution. And there's Timothy Lee Scott, who talks about uh, invasive plants providing a certain medicinal quality to ravage landscapes as well as the people who inhabit them. And then there's Dow Orion, who's out in Oregon, and she talks about um, the current state of restoration um, and how people, there's this large group of people who are trying to restore these native plant populations and how they're using different chemicals to do that and how um, we can use permaculture perspectives to repair landscapes using lessons learned from these invasive plants, you know, what they're doing, observations of them. There, so there are a lot of people out there doing it, both from an herbalist perspective and then um, an ecologist perspective. And she's actually involved in, I think, a lot of permaculture schools out there. I don't know if there's anyone who knows Dow Orion out there. Her, yeah. yeah, we've talked. So um, that's all I know. And I'm really encouraged by the work that they're doing and that's happening out there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Zach Elfers. I'm in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. I guess the question, as I break it down in my mind, is twofold. One is about invasive species, who, what, when, why, all that. And the other one is about climate change. So I'll begin with invasive species. In my experience in, in the field, so to speak, wandering around through different ecosystems, I've found this island effect where places where native diversity is high and relatively intact are very are, are relatively untouched by invasives. There's a couple of exceptions. Sometimes garlic mustard can make its way deep into places where you would not expect it to be, but by and large, that that is true. And uh, with plants, it's really it's really tricky to talk about invasive species because. Native plant communities are so resilient and they're so good at homeostasis and self-regulation. Now, if we wanted to talk about earthworms and rabbits in Australia, I would agree that, you know, something's definitely going on, which could be considered invasive. But, you know, with, with plants, it's a, it's a much trickier game. Around here, the places I see that are most susceptible to invasion are places that have already been vastly degraded. Now, whether that's a forest clear cut where all the ecological niches become opened up and grasses and other exotics dropped in off by birds and things like that become the first colonizers 
you know, that, that's one scenario. But another scenario is erosion, which raises our, basically increases our floodplain and it increases our riparian zones. And you'll see this a lot along rivers and creeks where the, um, basically the floodplains expand and a lot of native plant communities are swept away. And that opens that area to invasion by things like uh, lesser celandine, Japanese knotweed, you know, a lot of really vigorous, tough, invasive. So, you know, then again, it's not the plants that are causing this, but other um, human factors which led to this disturbance in the first place. So that, that leads us into climate change, which, as we know, is caused by human disturbance. And I don't know that there's a consensus at this time as to which way things are headed. I think most people say that we're headed towards warming climates, and certainly that's the short-term trend. But there's some people who are saying that the end game of this is another ice age. So, you know, I don't, I don't know which way it's going to go, if we're going to get five degrees warmer or if there's going to be an ice age in, a, in, you know, in the near future. So I don't know whether I should be planting things that are more warm tolerant or drought tolerant or more cold weather plants. But I think regardless of what we do, we should be focusing on regenerating the native seed bank and regenerating the seed bank in general because the seed bank has been raped for the last 400 years now. It's been cow fields, it's been corn fields, it's been tobacco fields, it's been, you know, whatever. But whatever native seed bank was there is there no longer. And it's left behind a vacuum. So we can fill it with the native seed bank again. That's what we have at hand to conceptualize what ought to be there. But beyond that, I really like this idea of that MCAT Anderson talks about in her book, Tending the Wild, which is basically getting rid of the idea of private property and social factors on the land and just treating the land for what it is and you know gardening without borders or boundaries i think uh, that would be one way to to bring forth this new vision of a, of a restored seed bank if we treated every space on earth as if it could be a potential garden we wouldn't have a lot of the degradation that we see. And part of tending the wild also is this native idea of potlatch. And potlatch historically was when various tribes got together, maybe in the fall, for a great feast. And during this time, they're exchanging stories, they're exchanging food, but importantly, they're also exchanging seeds. So this, this seed exchange used to be the lifeblood of basically ecosystem changes. So as you get together seasonally with your neighbors, they're giving you seeds from places more northern, they're giving you place, uh, seeds from more southerly places, for more easterly places, westerly places, all kinds of climates. And you're scattering these willy-nilly in a, in a way not unlike uh, Masanobu Fukuoka in One Straw Revolution. You don't know that everything is going to take, but these were seeds gifted to you, and of course you're going to give them ground. And uh, I think, you know, if we could practice that on a community basis, we would get all those northern species into the seed bank. We would get all those southern species into the seed bank. And whatever way the climate goes, let's hope that there would be representation. <clears throat> this is Ben again. I like your question a lot. Because I think, like Scott said to me, uh, what did you call it, a ball of wax? It's more like a nuclear explosion to me. So I, I have a few thoughts about your question and some of the other things that have been said in response to it. 
One is that, well, my favorite interview that Scott ever did was the interview with David Holmgren. And I remember in that interview, David Holmgren alluded a little bit to some work that he's done very low profile with rewilding in what he called novel ecosystems, which are ecosystems that have that are brand new, that have never existed before. And he mentions in that interview how, you know, most of these novel ecosystems are the result of human disturbance. And he even mentioned some study that had been done indicating that maybe a third of the earth is now covered in novel ecosystems. In my experience on earth, it looks to me like, at least here in North America, the vast majority of the landscape is covered in a novel ecosystem. A city is a novel ecosystem. An interstate is a novel ecosystem. A farm is a novel ecosystem. And even when I go out into the wild areas, the presence of all of the non-natives or the invasives indicate that it's a novel ecosystem because most of those plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, etc. have only been here for a few hundred years. These novel ecosystems are not... Like, we, we can look at them as a disturbance or a problem... But as soon as we start saying that they're a problem, we lose our scientific objectivity because humans are inherently a part of nature. We're part of the global ecosystem. And though we might not like what it is that we're doing, we can choose to look at these novel ecosystems either as uh, like a, a degradation or a problem, or we can choose to look at them as an ecological response. And we also, and everything that we do, is an ecological response to something that happened before us. And that the global ecosystem and local ecosystems continue to oscillate and pulse and respond. And they uh, sometimes pulse with teeming amounts of life and biodiversity. And sometimes, you know, there are apparently moments in the history of our planet when complex life forms have basically died back to single-celled life for a long, long time, and then there's been a rebound. In the same vein of thinking, we as humans, if we believe that our ecological role on this planet is to continue to exist, then the disturbance that we've caused and the response to it that seems to be threatening the community of life that sustains us is, is a problem. But if we view ourselves as a pulse in the biological or ecological history of the planet, it's just as scientific and logical to look at our species and our existence here as a disturbance event that's meant to come and go. And we might be gone soon because of that. And what happens after is impossible to predict. So that being said, I want to get to the question about like, what can we do agriculturally to plan for climate change? And one of the things that a lot of environmentalists and permaculturists like to point out is that human beings have been around for two-ish million years, apparently, and have survived massive and sometimes catastrophic ecological changes. The thing is <laughs> that we never did that with agriculture. We only did that by watching the landscape and responding to whatever it offered us. So my suggestion is, as permaculturists, that we do less and don't necessarily look to agriculture as the solution to what's happening. Don't necessarily look to, oh, well, what can we plan? What, what kind of ecosystem can I design? Because 
the truth is that even though we have like models and projections about what climate change is going to do, we actually don't know. But the one thing that we do know is that the landscape will respond to the climate change. And the landscape has supported us for two million years. And it's likely that if we survive this massive disturbance that we're participating in, it's not going to be agriculture that gets us through it, but deep observation of what the landscape offers us as it responds to the disturbance. Uh, my name is Jason Gadeski. I came to permaculture through rewilding. So I was skeptical of permaculture for a very long time because I don't think agriculture has worked out too well for us. And I think that the jury is still out on, on uh, horticulture because they've only been around for 10,000 years. And you got to be really bad to blow up in just 10,000 years. So it might be just a slower burn of unsustainable. But what finally got me on board with permaculture was thinking that maybe we have a greater responsibility than just rewilding ourselves because we've gotten a lot of other species into this mess with us. What, what responsibility do we owe to chickens? You know, what, what is the rest of the world that we, what about these landscapes, these, these uh, novel ecosystems that we have, what responsibility do we have to them to help them rewild as well? And something like global climate change and how that's changing things comes up with that. Uh, I was recently reading a study about coral reefs and they're in a lot of trouble because the more carbon that's in the atmosphere the more acidic the oceans get the more the coral reefs die but they found that the coral reefs that were doing better than expected were not the ones that people were leaving alone they were the ones that were actively being managed with traditional techniques like taboos and marine uh, rights so your group of people will have the right to fish in this area and it's important uh, once you've fished there to not fish there for a couple years because they, the fish will start to become afraid of people and they'll be harder to fish. It also happens to give them time for their populations to rebound. And so these were the coral reefs that were doing the best. In permaculture, we have this principle of the problem is the solution. Well, if humans are the problem, then it seems to me that we can't just sit back wait for this problem to fix itself. If climate change runs the course that it's currently on, it will be really, really bad. But maybe if we take an active role in tending the wild, we can help this along. But that means that it's not going to be the same as when things got started. The great Colombian shuffle will not be unshuffled. And so I think that one of the things that we need to abandon along the way is probably the ideological divide of native versus invasive species. It It's just too complicated to continue to cling to that at this point. We've been going through an interesting journey on our farm, kind of around all of these issues. And the name of the farm is Wild Song Farm. And uh, we've realized that kind of maybe our new motto is going to be embrace the wild. And some people were here for my talk and some weren't, but um, we've worked with, diff we really wanted to integrate animals onto our property and uh, had pit we've been working with pigs and poultry and have, kind of decided in the long haul we're not going to keep working with the pigs and we're going to really expand on poultry and uh, we really actually realized that we have a lot of deer and a lot of rabbits and a lot of groundhogs and they're really thriving on our property and so we're going to try to get more into hunting and we also have thought about um, raising up some baby turkeys and releasing them in our wooded area to become wild to hunt them. In addition, on the invasive species, embracing what's abundant on our property, we have a lot of Japanese honeysuckle, and we have a lot of uh, tree of heaven, and we're going to start mulching them and using them as biomass and coppicing from them. And we have a lot of hay, so we're going to be cutting that and using that 
as our main source of carbon and bedding for animals and, and creating compost. So I think that, you know, what it comes down to is looking at what your ecosystem around you is producing in abundance and latching onto that because, you know, why fight with nature and what's already growing there? I believe wholeheartedly in looking at how ecosystems were managed by Native Americans and trying to find something between that and and agriculture to make land productive. Uh, thank you, Jason, for speaking about the ills of agriculture. I couldn't agree more. At the end, you said, I don't think we should be focused on native versus invasive species. And I agree with that to a point, but I do think that we need to focus on native species for just the simple reason that often what is native is what can be considered human habitat. So with a lot of the ecosystems that I see, these novel ecosystems, well, let me talk about Bill Mollison real quick. One of his, one of the things he would say is that everything gardens. That was one of his, his principles. And I mean, this is a, this is a truth in our, our reality. Everything is maintaining its own habitat. And one of the problems with humans, to speak of humans and problems, is that we've taken ourselves out of this natural process, by and large, and we've given the responsibility to somebody else, like a farmer or something like that. So we are not actively involved in the creation of our own habitat. So when we destroy the seed bank, when we chop down the old growth forests, what emerges and what grows in its place is the berries that are carried in by the birds, like multiflora rose. For as, as much as everybody talks about that as being this horrible invasive, how did it get there? Because birds love the berries. They're gardening it. You know, it benefits them, but it doesn't necessarily benefit us. Sure, you know, rose hips are great medicine, but it's not going to nourish you in your life. So, you know, the, these novel ecosystems, I think, just don't have the capacity to really nurture human habitat the way native species do, such as in our area, groundnut, licorice root, cucumber root, um, spring beauty, uh, Jerusalem artichoke, you know, acorns, all this stuff. So I, I, just, I just think native species are very important. The question that Toby Hemingway raises is native to when? So how are you defining native species? That's a really good point. I agree with the line that says there isn't really a fundamental distinction between native and invasive, but I think that there is a history and a lineage that's here, and basically plant and insect communities that have been in an area for thousands of years now. For example, with a lot of our spring ephemerals, their seeds are distributed by ants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on a fundamental structural level with the way our ecology is set up, there is something native about certain plants because they interact in a, for, in a symbiotic way. They, you know, they cooperate with what's going on around them. They're not just like some newcomer that doesn't play by the rules. And, well, by and large, we are that newcomer who isn't playing by the rules. But this isn't the way it, it necessarily has to be. Right. We can learn that symbiosis again. I, I definitely agree that um, these communities that have grown up over you know thousands of years are much more complex than like the novel ecosystems. And certainly, the novel ecosystems across the world all seem to consist of like the same small handful of plants, basically. And so we're losing a lot of complexity. And I suppose. I'm not so much arguing that we shouldn't try to preserve these communities of life, but is it at all possible to 
move them north and to stop thinking about preserving them where they are and instead think about preserving them, if we can, where they will be able to survive. I think if you observe nature closely, you'll see uh, as an entity it's infinitely smarter than we are. That the plants are moving themselves north. The animals are moving themselves north. And... We just have to look at what's useful to us that we can integrate into our systems where we are and let nature take its course. Because there's no other, we can't make it do anything else except what it's doing. It will shape itself, I believe. And just as a side note, the lamb's quarters were really big and delicious this year. So... Every year is different, and we never know exactly what it will be or, or who the star of the show will be, what species is going to thrive the best. And um, it's kind of fascinating and good, and try to look at it that way would be my advice. There have been times in the past when there were mass extinctions because climate changed faster than nature could keep up with. It is moving north. We can measure how fast it's moving north, but it's not moving north as fast as the climate's changing. And I do think there is something that we can do. We can, we can start planting, like a tree is going to move a lot faster if we pick it up and plant it <laughs> than if we wait for it to spread. And that's, that's kind of what I have in mind when I think of like how humans can intervene here and help provide a solution for the problem we started. I really think that this this whole issue is so complex and that there is no one answer. And I think that this is where that purpley weird part of permaculture comes in, where we're all kind of driven and led in different ways to do different things. And um, in my own farm, you know, I've been wiped out so many times by the bears and the possums and the groundhogs and, um, what my heart has told me is that I need to stop trying to work against what's there and eat more venison and find more recipes for groundhogs and really work with what's there and really take up my own, you know, take responsibility for where I live and my role that I should be playing in that place. And for me, in the woods of West Virginia, it's hunting and it's... Um, eating wild and it's um, food forest integration and um, it's not raising chickens, sheep, and probably not turkeys either. So, so yeah, I, I think that, that a non-answer is really the answer and that, that there's so many different niches that we all have to fill. You know, in terms of planting things to think ahead, there's no harm in trying, right? that you scatter the seed. I think that's what Bill Mollison did at the beginning with his teaching. You scatter the seed, and where um, it thrives, uh, that's a happy circumstance. Yeah, this is Seppi. I tend to to say things that are controversial, so I don't know why I would do anything differently now. (laughs) So, I mean, so there just seems to be so many paradoxes that... It's kind of like the truth is in the room, but nobody can see it, or at least I can't. One of the things that you had said was that nature is so much smarter than humans, except that we're also part of nature, right? And so then that calls for me into question, like, 
Well, how can we say that what we're doing, to me, I guess what seems to be the issue is our lack of vision, right? Like our lack of vision leads to a place of fear and desperation when sometimes I think that, and maybe the end results would look very similar, but I guess to me there's something inside that speaks to this idea that if we attempt to do things out of fear and desperation as opposed to love and a sense of childlike wonder at the system that we're a part of, that we're going to tend to create the same sort of outcomes, potentially. And so maybe this whole mess that we're in, and I don't, I don't say this flippantly, I mean, I have, I have children, and it's challenging for me to, to step back sometimes and look at the world that I'm leaving them. But I just wonder if maybe it's a shift in perspective. Like, for me, when I'm on my hands and knees looking at the little things that I find so much beauty in, I treat them with the same kind of respect as, as if I was desperately trying to tend their lives, right? Like, it may look the same. The decisions that I, that I make or, or how, how I go about interacting may look the same, but the space that I'm coming from is, feels a lot different when it's coming from love as opposed to when it's coming from fear. And I don't know how to have a conversation about climate change with, without it stemming from a place of fear. And there seems to me to be some level of truth in the idea that we are a part of nature. And maybe it's just our lack of vision, our lack of depth or breadth or length in how we see things that lends us to this fear response. I'm not suggesting that I have any sort of answer. It's very much like my PDC where I just have more questions. Anyway, that's what I'm noticing. Well, thanks very much for that. I've been so wound up by this whole question. I didn't know if I wanted to speak. But I do think things are changing so fast in the... mm, in the landscape world that it does cause people to be fearful and they and nostalgia is a very dangerous thing you know people want these lovely landscapes the way they used to be and you know and I understand that and I I want and love these native landscapes too and I see them disappearing and like Seppi and others are always saying that there's a there's a lot of hurt that we have to recognize that we carry and we have to actually mourn the loss Mm -hmm of all this but the way I like to wrap this kind of thought up is if you know we had um, a a Native American leader an old crone or chief fall asleep 500 years ago and wake up today they'd say hmm wow what the hell has happened pardon my French but uh, what are all these plants and animals doing here what does Mother Nature have have for us in mind to react to them. How can we use them? Why did they change? Not, they don't belong here, with some authoritative, fearful response. Seppi, I have a question about what you said. You said that uh, humans are part of nature, and we have this fear response. Do you think that that fear response is just something broken in us? Or is it adaptive? Is it something adaptive that we've, had, that we've lost our good relationship with? And... If that's the case, is there such a thing as a time when you should act out of fear? Wow. Um, I wasn't expecting anybody to ask me a question. Um, 
So, uh, I mean, I guess I see this as I. So again, I'm I'm really I'm I feel I'm feeling really out there, like on the on the cusp of this. I do think that fear serves a function, but I also think that that when I think that there's this evolutionary shift that's happening, and I think that fear may be like maybe one of those things that's falling away that's no longer serving a function at least the function that it was intended for that's what it feels like to me that it's not necessarily necessary any longer and i guess for for me it's because like i think that what we're experiencing is so much bigger than us like it lacks the language we lack the language to really speak accurately to what's happening from my perspective and i think that fear stems from a lack of knowing when i also truly believe that we do know like we all know we're born with this knowing so i don't know that i have an answer for you i know that i tend to make poor decisions when i'm afraid just in general i know that sometimes fear has has saved my life so i don't necessarily see it as a bad thing but fuck man we're like i'm sorry scott like we're 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 operating under such an umbrella of fear we're driven by it you know in the old system and in this bridge space between we don't know we, we we're like we're like scrambling and so some of us like we have this answer but we don't know how to quit our jobs and do exactly what it is that we know we should be doing and some of us are able to do what we should be doing but it's still like we're we're being messed with in this way and that we don't know we just don't know and i think that we just need to settle into the idea that we don't know and learn to be okay with that and in the process bring joy back into the mix bring laughter back into the mix you know and there's so many people doing amazingly beautiful work but if there's not joy and laughter and community i i just don't see it being effective i see it just being the same old attempt at dominating something that we don't understand so i don't know if that doesn't answer your question effectively enough but that's my answer Okay, I just want to pull together a couple of things that were just said from a neuroscience point of view, which is that fear comes from the most primitive part of our brain, the brain stem, and the purpose of fear is to allow us to choose between when we were primitive creatures uh, to fight or flight, to flee or to fight. And so it, it was very adaptive from an evolutionary point of view. Now, it's possible that at this point, fear still signals us that we're in danger and that our planet is in danger and our society's in danger. So from that perspective, fear is a very useful signal. And flight is clearly not the answer to what we've done to the planet. And maybe the thing is that what used to be called fight, like people fighting each other should actually be fighting for the planet. In other words, you fight for your permaculture values or you fight for your, you know, having, having these, these issues be considered by your governments and your, your, your people in authority. And that we're getting very strong signals 
uh, that we need to be doing that. As far as joy, as opposed to misery or, or despair, absolutely, I think joy and love are the two, are sort of the feelings that allow people to move forward. I think the reason Buddhism has become so popular in the last 25 years is because it really does talk about joy and loving kindness. And so I guess that I guess that's it. I hope that pulls a couple of things together. Permaculture to me is a love revolution. It's not about fear. Um, we grow food because we love it, and it loves us. I mean, there's a there's a reciprocity there, and the, the plants reach out to us, and we reach out to them. And permaculture recognizes that it doesn't want to perpetuate the crimes that have happened, such as chopping down a forest to grow annual vegetables. You know, so it's it's very heart motivated in that sense, and. I just, I don't see fear in permaculture. I only see love. I did want to speak to the whole idea of, you know, the physiological things that happen, you know, when you're afraid. And it actually pulls blood away from your brain. You're not able to make really informed decisions when you're freaked out and scared. And I think that a lot of the decisions that have been made for us have been out of fear. So I think that it, in many ways, it is such a horrible thing to have people who are in power running scared and making decisions for us. And I think that that is something that needs to be addressed. But I do feel like fear is a motivator for people who would normally not do anything and would sit and watch the world burn. It's just like light and dark, you know, there is, there's a good side of fear and there's a really damaging and harmful side of fear. And so just like the, you know, invasive plants, there's lessons to be learned on both sides and I think it's going to take a balancing of the good and the not so good parts of fear to kind of get us out of this mess. I'm going to go ahead and bring us to a close. I didn't sleep well last night and was awake at 3 a.m., because I didn't know what was going to happen today. I didn't know how many people were going to be here, whether or not all this work that's gone into it and all the prep and all the setup and everything was going to fall apart at the last minute. It all went so smoothly that I had to seek something that could be wrong and as a result didn't sleep. And I poured all that anxiety into my opening remarks, introducing Emma and Joel. But I walk away from that experience as I'm a little tired and worn And I look around, and days like today give me hope. Hope isn't something that I put a lot of stock in because it's bandied about a lot just as words. But today, through the different presentations and the folks who came here and who tackled this really big, hard question that led in directions that I don't think any of us were expecting, what we, even in this space, we stepped up to it. And though I can't imagine that we could answer something like that in a half an hour, we at least started the conversation. And if there's nothing else that we can do right now because of the space that we're in, if we can talk to somebody and tell them that we're afraid about something, then we can connect with them and open our heart to them. And then when someone else comes to us and they want to share their joy or their heartache, we can make that space for them too. And in that, we have the ability to come together and really make a difference. And if we don't do it, our chance of anything happening is zero.
any one of us does it, our chance of doing, of actually pulling all this off is like point oh 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 one. And I don't know how many O's I put in there, but based on the number of people who are here, we can remove two of those because we had a hundred people here today who wanted to make a difference and came together to form a community for a day. But in many ways, we will walk away having formed a community for a lifetime for the lessons that we take away from it. And we can return to the folks who we know and begin to make a difference, not only for ourselves and each other, but this earth we call home. Thank you all for being a part of this conversation and the convergence and everything else. It's been a pleasure to have met all of you and spent this day with you. Thank you. Thanks. And that was our conversation on climate change held at the 2016 Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence. If you'd like to attend this year's Convergence, pick up your tickets at 2017mapc.eventbrite.com or via the link in the show notes. In the show notes, you'll also find links to all the presenters who have information available, as well as some resources, including Timothy Lee Scott, Dow Ryan, my interview with Dow Ryan, as well as my interview with David Holmgren. What are your thoughts on this conversation and what was presented today? How would you react to climate change? What are you doing currently in your own designs, in your own work, to take this disaster, which is already upon us, into consideration? I'd like to know. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Or if you want to go the old-fashioned way, send me a letter. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. As someone who doesn't have land, most of my permaculture design when it comes to climate change is to continue to decrease my impact as much as possible. Though I know that a single person doesn't make a huge difference, by living a life that is very intentional in its use of resources, in minimizing my use of resources by not consuming nearly as much as I used to, by recycling more, by spending more time with people and on those shared experiences, it's my way to work on this. As a parent, I also spend time with my children and show them a love of the natural world, about the things that they care about, teaching them about the milkweed because they love monarch butterflies taking care of the water so that each year they can continue to hear the spring peepers and the other frogs that come to the valley that they call home. And together we develop a sense of place and a love and wonder for central Pennsylvania that we call home and how that connects to our larger regions. As my son and I talk about not fishing in the Susquehanna River because it's polluted, that we would not go there to seek food but we can on the creek that he calls home that is a tributary to that great and mighty river. Because we visit the beach, and any place where there is water is home to us, just as the hills call us to them, to talk about everything that washes downstream, and why we find plastic washed up onto the sands as we walk along the shoreline and doing our part to collect those and, if able, recycle them, but also to do our best to remove them from those waters when we find them. 
and to be active stewards of this world and what we care about. It's our part in taking care of Earth and in spending time together. We can take care of ourselves and each other. And if there's any way that I can help you do that, send me an email, give me a phone call, drop something in the post, leave a comment, ask me questions. Through Patreon, the website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of the places that you can find me, get in touch. This work of education and stewardship, I feel that this is my calling. And if there's any way that I can get you further along your path, or help you find that way. That's why I put all this information out there, so that we can foster a relationship together to create the world that we want to live in. Take care, and I'll talk with you again soon.